Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. Desi, let's start out by thanking our Patreon contributors. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. On our Patreon, we have access to almost 200 bonus episodes. Wow. It's a lot. Yeah. We just uploaded some new ones yesterday. So this week we had Joran, Bianca, Chelsea, Anthony, Jackie, Samantha, Jennabelle, Stephanie, Holly, Kay, Michelle, Zane, Jennifer, Starbright, Mandy, Kincaid, Christina, Angelique, James, Coriana, Carly, Simon, Hannah, Jermaine, Tay, Emma, Trisha, Patty, Lowe, Arif, Teresa, Tiffany, and Lindsay. I can't believe Carly Simon. <laughs> Oh my God! Was there someone? Was there someone named Carly and then Simon? Yeah. <laughs> thank you for thank you for contributing to the Patreon, Carly Simon. Yeah, big that's fan. really sweet. Uh, <laughs> so today, I thought we would kick off Pride Month by talking about a man who is considered to be Hollywood's first openly gay star. Although he's not really remembered for his acting career today, William Billy Haynes was one of the top box office stars of the late 1920s, early 1930s. During the height of his film career, he lived in an openly gay relationship with Jimmy Shields, and the duo was one of the most popular couples in Hollywood, living in a rarefied social circle where they faced little homophobia. But as the 1930s raged on, so did the power of the MPAA, which put together the Hayes Code, which we've talked about before, is basically a censorship organization that provided rules that the movies were expected to follow, basically taking out all of the good stuff. Hollywood contracts were now coming with moral clauses that explicitly forbade any contact, I'm sorry, conduct a star might use to embarrass the studios, namely illicit sexual relationships and particularly uh, gay relationships. While most stars willingly entered into what was referred to at the time as lavender marriages, Haynes refused, leading to a battle between him and MGM head Louis B. Mayer, but I'm getting ahead of myself and I will get to that much later. My main source for uh, this this episode is a really good book called Wisecracker, The Life and Times of William, William Haynes, Hollywood's First Openly Gay Star by William J. Mann. It's a really good book. Highly recommend. So let's see where Billy Haynes came from because his life was pretty wild from the start. So Billy Haynes was born on January 1st, 1900 in Stanton, Virginia to George and Laura Haynes. He would later describe himself as a true child of the 20th century, both in step with changing modern times and sometimes ahead of the curve. By all accounts, it was a happy, happy childhood. The family was well-respected and well-off, and Billy had that gentle Southern charm that he carried with him throughout his life. Billy's love of performing began when he started singing in the church choir at the age of eight, which led to an interest in theater and motion pictures. He would spend hours watching early silent films in the local theater. Now, Billy was very close to his mother, something he would joke about later as being sort of a stereotypical thing for a young gay boy. She was a dressmaker and would spend time with her. He would spend time with her amongst all of the beautiful things rather than play with the kids his own age. He also enjoyed cooking and he especially learned, uh, loved making candy. He had a love of architecture and design from an early age and decorated his own childhood room in an extravagant manner. Now, his grandfather, who was sort of this powerful patriarch of this family, began to have disdain for his young grandson, and he referred to him oftentimes as having unmanly ways, particularly like hated his love of silk pajamas, silk underwear, and fancy things. 
As Billy entered his teen years, he really became fed up with being a kid. He wanted to be an adult. He started playing hooky and acting out in school. He also got in trouble with his mom for charging a whole outfit, including a dark blue derby hat and walking cane to her account when he was supposed to just buy a pair of dress slacks. Look, I understand where he was coming (laughs) from. He needed to have the the accessories to go with the outfit. Look, you picture him there. (laughs) He's looking at the pants. Then he gets convinced to buy the jacket. <laughs> it's a whole thing. You got to get the hat. The hat. If you, once you get the hat, the walking stick is a must. <laughs> now, he's a very handsome preteen boy at this point. He's already six feet tall by the time he reaches 14. We love a tall king. I mean, that's tall. That's very tall. Especially for a boy, because sometimes they don't get high, uh, tall until later, right? Yeah. Um, but he felt suffocated by his conservative town, uh, despite the acceptance of his parents. Billy would later say that what happened to him before the age of 14 wasn't interesting, but what happened to him after 14 14 was far more important. Namely, it was when he became what he described as sexually conscious. It's also when he ran away from his home, accompanied by an unidentified young man to whom Haynes refers to as his boyfriend, although there was apparently no sexual relationship between the two. The pair ended up in Hopewell, Virginia, which had a reputation for immorality. It was considered the sin city of the South. The town was located on the James River, which had floating brothels, including one called the Bo Peep. Saloons were everywhere, and because there was no local police force, it was a real um, lawless town. Sounds a lot like where Dean Martin grew up. Yeah, where was that? Like St. Louis or like somewhere in the Midwest? Ohio. Yeah, but it was like on a river, right? Did it have that? I can't I remember. I don't remember the geography. I it was like gambling boats or something. They, there was brothels and there was gambling. Yeah, love it. Now, Haynes and his boyfriend got jobs working at the local DuPont factory producing nitrocellulose for $50 a week, which is a lot of money uh, back then, even, especially for a 14-year-old. Uh, this chemical was quite dangerous, though, and Billy said his hair turned platinum blonde from working around the chemicals. Billy was tired of working the grind at the factory, though, and he noticed all the money being brought in by the brothels and bars. He decided that he and his boyfriend would open up their own dance hall, which was a code name for brothel at the time. Now, this town was full of men who worked at the factory, and they had pretty much no access to sex except for these floating brothels that were going up and down the river. (laughs) They wanted it. Very few women lived in the town. Like uh, Billy was a young, pretty boy, and he was also in high demand, and he knew it. He opened up the dance hall selling tickets for guys to dance with him as his boyfriend played drums. Eventually, they were able to put together a bigger band because the funds were rolling in. There make, a lot of guys want to dance with Billy. Now, he considered it an unsuccessful night if there weren't more than three fights, and Billy himself once got into a fight with an Italian fellow who stabbed him in the chest with a stiletto, which is a knife, not a shoe. <laughs> <laughs> but it's where they got the name for the shoe. Yes, and the knife looks like the heel. It is a very thin, long, kind of pointy knife. Like, yeah. But yeah, uh, so kind of disappointing. I, I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> where where did they get the stiletto? I didn't even know they made those back then. <laughs> now, he would later show the scar off proudly, saying, like, ah, it's all part of the game. You know, 14-year-olds <laughs> who run brothels, this happens to them all the time. <laughs> his parents obviously were frantic over his disappearance. They tracked him. They, like, got the local police and drove with their local police to Hopewell to get him. He did not return home with them. He remained in Hopewell, and he sent money back to them to help support the family. That was, like, his deal. That is such a baller move where he's like, don't think, don't worry about it. Don't worry <laughs> about it. go home. I'll send you some money. Yeah. <laughs> No way that emasculated his father. (laughs) (laughs) The couple, meaning Billy and his friend, remained in Hopewell until the whole town was destroyed by fire in 1915. This town was basically put up real fast. Everything was just made of highly combustible wood. I mean... There was no like long-term thinking as far as building these structures went. So when a fire started, it just fucking went up in smoke. It was like a carnival. Yeah, basically. And there were some like rumors that a conservative religious group started the fire and Mm. burned the town, but there was no evidence of that happening. And it could have easily just been a fucking cigarette. Like that's how combustible it was. So his parents hoped that he would return to Stanton, but Billy decided that he was going to try his fate in the big city and headed up to New York City at the age of 15. 
Once he got there, he began working in another small uh, factory. He supplemented his income by being what was referred to then as a punk, which was a younger man who exchanged sex for money, favors, or protection from an older man referred to then as a wolf. Following the bankruptcy of the family business and the mental breakdown of his father, uh, the family moves to Richmond and Billy returns home in 1917 to help support his family. Once his father is recovered and back in action, he returns to New York City in 1919, settling in what is the big gay community in New York at that time, and still Greenwich Village. Right. He gets a job at a linen department in a luxury department store where he ran a side hustle procuring dates with wealthy men and women who came into the store. He eventually gets fired for flirting too much with the customers. Look, he was just being smart by making extra money on company time. He's keeping them in the store. (laughs) (laughs) They might buy some sheets on the way out. I bet you they were all buying shit just to talk to him. Right. So I don't know. I don't see what the problem here is. Now, he does manage to get a job after this through a family friend. It's like a boring office job, but it pays well. So he has this kind of square life by day, and he's living up this bohemian lifestyle in the village at night. He moves in with an older gay couple in the village, Mitchell Foster and Larry Sullivan, who become lifelong friends. They all began going to drag shows. He also befriends vaudeville performers at the time, such as Gracie Allen, George Burns, and Jack Benny, who was rumored to be gay. A running joke with Billy that is sort of infamous, one that he told, would always be clarifying that when he said marry Benny, it was not about Jack. It was meant to be his wife. He was call- But he, the joke was he was calling him a Mary. Yeah. I mean, that's like a... That's a, a classic. It's a classic to call some guy a Mary or Nancy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But Jack Benny's wife was actually named Mary, so it was, Love it. he could kind of get away with it. Now, he also was friends with another young couple... They, they were named Archie Leach and Jack Kelly, who would one day become Cary Grant and Oscar-winning costume designer Ori Kelly. Ori Kelly's resume is insane, by the way. Yeah. He's done every movie ever. And he actually, he's from Australia. He's like the most winningest Australi- like Oscars for an Australian ever because wow. he won tons of awards for his costume design. Another icon, a Hollywood icon he befriended during this period is George Cukor, who goes on to become a very famous director. He also credits this period of his life as being when he sort of developed this wisecracker persona that he would become famous for. Now, for most of 1921, he is the kept man of an older woman. When she ditches him, his friends convince him that he can become a model. He decides to finally see if he could indeed make a living off of his face. Now, luckily for Billy, he is very attractive. So this wasn't just like, you know, propping your friend up in a low moment when they have no chance of a modeling career. He really could do it. He really could. Talent scout Bijou Fernandez discovers Haynes as part of the Goldwyn Pictures New Faces of 1922 contest, and the studio signs him to a $40 a week contract. He travels to Hollywood with his fellow contestant winner, Eleanor Boardman, in March of that year. Now, When they move there, Eleanor pretty much gets work right away. She's a very pretty actress. Billy doesn't, but he's still getting paid, and he loves Hollywood. Hollywood in the Roaring Twenties was absolutely the ideal setting for Billy. It had all the hedonism of Hopewell that he had there, but it was far more glamorous, and he loved the finer things. We all know this. Soon after his arrival, his former sugar mama comes to Hollywood to rekindle their affair. But Billy was over it by that point. He had found a young and wild Hollywood crowd. He didn't have time for her. She ends up leaving after finding out the place she had rented was the former home of William Desmond Taylor, the site of the infamous murder. She was in that apartment. Wow. Isn't that crazy? So Billy finally starts getting small parts and some publicity. He has become close friends with actress Barbara Lamar, who he met through a friend of his, Paul Byrne. Now, we know this name. Paul uh, was married to Jean Harlow. He, I guess he was like an executive. So here's a weird little story, like a side note. Paul had tried to date Barbara before uh, he introduced her to William. He was rejected by her, which led him to stick his head in the toilet, flushing it, trying to drown himself. Jesus. Isn't that wild? I mean, this guy is a lot. He has problems. I mean, I think we've talked about looking into his story 
but we just haven't gotten around to it yet. We He's been on our episode list for a very long time. Yeah, and he kind of shows up in every story of Hollywood at this time. But yeah, yeah we'll definitely get into him at some point. Um, so Haynes and Lamar become very close friends. And there is a rumor, this author in particular believes that they did have some kind of sexual relationship as well. With Paul Byrne? No, between William and Barbara. Okay. So he would have sex with women, although I don't think he considered himself bisexual. It was like, whatever. Billy never wanted to play the game, though, pretending he was dating someone for celebrity rags, even though he technically could have with with Barbara. I mean, they were friends and they might have really been fucking. He would instead tell nosy reporters that he loved actress Kate Price most of all when they would ask. She was an actress well into her 50s and not at all a, a glamour girl. Look, like that, kind is, of a- <laughs> that is such a young gay man answer. Yeah, and he does this all the time with actresses. It's almost like offensive if he uses you. Because <laughs> they're always sort of comic, comic actresses who are kind of dowdy or whatever, way too old for him. Right. But I don't think they care. I love that. Uh, so the studio tries numerous times to set him up in one of these relationships to satiate these fan magazines, but Billy never plays along. During the 1920s, he always finds ways to answer questions about his personal life without lying or telling the truth. It wasn't evident to readers at the time, but when you look back at these quips, he's like always being sarcastic or ironic. It's like body wisecracks, double wisecracks, double entendre. Like he's always avoiding it, but technically not lying, right? Which is smart. Uh, he has an infamous quip around this time. An MGM voice coach informed him that his vocal technique was lip lazy, and he fired back, "I've never had any complaints before." <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, went there. Now, around this time, MGM is born out of a a merger. The new studio would be run by the much-beloved Irving Thalberg and the much-hated Louis B. Mayer. So Metro was like a distribution. Uh, Then you had Goldwyn, which was where uh, William Haynes was. And then Mayer, obviously, that asshole. (laughs) That's where MGM comes from. And we've talked about Mayer a lot. Oh, we're, that's like an eight-parter. I know. <laughs> At some point when we get really ambitious, because every time I'm reading something where he's mentioned, I could go on and on, but I always have to stop myself. Same. He's a monster. So Thalberg becomes a close friend and supporter of Billy's, and he's a great ally to have in this situation, because Mare, as we just said, is a nightmare, so it's nice to have Thalberg as a sort of backup. It's rumored that Haynes had actually had a, an affair with Thalberg's wife, Norma Shearer, who was a famous actress at that time, but many deny that Billy would ever do that to a friend's, with a friend's wife. Um, what wasn't in contention is that he is having an affair with Ramon uh, Navarro at this time. Billy and Ramon were um, photographed together all the time. It's like two buds hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> Just two buds. Uh, Billy had another great quip about his friendship. He said that the two sang in the same church choir. <laughs> now that is a that is a that is a great cover story. Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, what is it like, friend of Judy or like friend a, of Dorothy? Friend of Dorothy, right, 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 right. We sing in the same church choir, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. So, an actor who. I had I saw I had his name, but no one will ever heard of him. He got jealous of these two and all the publicity they were getting as buds. He told um, Louis B. Mayer, he tattled on them <gasps> and told Louis B. Mayer that those two had been visiting a Hollywood bordello that catered to gay men. Now, Mayer lost it and almost fired Billy on the spot when he got this news. Thalberg basically saved Billy's ass, but Mayor forbid those two to see each other anymore, and he actually had the police shut down this bordello <gasps> like permanently. But Ramon's so hot. I know. It was devastating. <laughs> I like like I was curious, like what's the board like what's makes something a bordello <laughs> as opposed to like a brothel? a brothel or a bar or like you know what I mean? Like to me, a bordello has a lot of burgundy velvet. That's what I'm. Th- I think it's a style. <laughs> I think it's it dark and I think it has those curtains, those burgundy velvet curtains with lots of like gold tassels on them. Yeah, 
I'm in, I'm like red flock, burgundy flocked wallpaper. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I love, I, I love Bordello. I was just curious if there is like a technical difference. I'd like to go to a Bordello. Me too. Now it's around this time that Billy makes one of his most lasting friendships. And that is with a young actress named Joan Crawford. He is widely credited with helping her become a star and a gay icon. He helped her get rid of her hick accent. He advised her early on about like how she can stand out and get noticed. Cause at this point she was not uh, famous. He uh, took her out on the party scene. He got her dating successful men. So she'd be photographed, all that kind of stuff. Uh, And she really did start standing out and became a thing, obviously. 1926 was a big year for Haynes, thanks to his first big hit movie, Brown of Harvard. Billy Haynes was on his way to being ranked as one of the top 10 box office stars in Hollywood. He had latched onto a formula of sort of a funny, wisecracking pump punk, not pump, who was beginning to steal movies from bigger stars. With that high uh, came the low of his old friend, Barbara Lamar, dying unexpectedly of tuberculosis at the age of 29. But it would also be the year he would meet his lifelong love, a younger man named Jimmy Shields. Now, in 1926, on a trip to New York, while on the cusp of his superstardom, Haynes had a whirlwind fling with a 21-year-old former sailor named Jimmy Shields. They met met in a bathhouse in New York, but the connection was so real that they found each other afterwards and continued uh, this affair. When Haynes returned to LA, he brought Shields with him. He moved his new boyfriend into his house, and he got him work as an extra at MGM. He was pretty much trying to follow the example of his friends back in the day in New York, the, the gay couple he lived with, who also stayed together for like 45 years. Uh, he wanted that kind of relationship. He was intent on living with Jimmy in Hollywood without embarrassment or apology. Now, Haynes living openly with another man, sort of <laughs> everyone in town basically knew he was gay at that point. Like it was very open. It did nothing to impact his popularity around town or at the studio. Um, he was a regular at San Simeon. He was great friends with Marion Davis and William Randolph Hearst loved him. It was like hard to get into that inner circle. So the fact that he was just showed how open Hollywood is at that was at that time to uh, openly gay uh, people. The movie press also knew, but nobody wanted to expose anything about him or anyone for that reason. Uh, they also knew they'd be frozen out of MGM for the rest of time if they ever went after one of their stars. So... It's a really weird uh, period in Hollywood where the studios really did control the media at this time, and that's going to change very soon. But it was sort of this golden age where they could live this life openly in the late 20s and get away with it, and no one really gave them a hard time for it. So, I mean, as I said, these guys were at every major social event dinner party, Uh, The Hollywood bigwigs were fine with this. The last thing they needed, however, was a gay scandal, um, a la numerous straight stars that had big scandals, including what I mentioned before, the William Desmond Taylor with Mabel Norman, that actress who was involved in that scandal. We did an episode on William Desmond Taylor a very long time ago. And Fatty Arbuckle, which is like episode two, right? That that is episode two. So like they had had these scandals with straight stars. So it's like, they don't need it with a gay star. Like they were a little more apprehensive about that because then it added this other element. Billy began crossing the line for them when he began cruising with Jimmy at a popular cruising spot in downtown LA called Pershing Square, which still exists. A police raid went down there and several young men were arrested, including Billy. Now, the studio, as we all know, quickly jumped into action, erasing all evidence of the crime, getting charges dropped, and basically making it all disappear. Mayer called Billy into his office and made it clear that Billy was now his bitch. Like, he felt like he had something over on Billy now. But Billy didn't see it that way at all. He knew as long as he was box office king, there was nothing Mayer would do to end that money train. Mayer, by the way, is a raging homophobe. Like, despite him maybe putting up with it, he's fucking does not like gay people. He's disgusted. He's really conservative. He would often cry to try to convince Billy to stop cruising. And Billy, (laughs) first of all, he's very manipulative. We've heard this about him. He starts whining and crying. So he's crying and you picture this old fucking potato looking guy blubbering. (laughs) (laughs) That is pathetic. I'm sorry. (laughs) Crying because, because someone is cruising. Grow up. I know, just the idea of it. But Billy would shut him up by pretending to cry back. Oh. So he would like mock. Uh, 
<laughs> Louis B. Mayer. That's a bold move. Dude, a super bold move. I actually make make a joke about that. Like that's the best way to get someone to stop crying is to mock them. Because <laughs> then they and get it's angry. A, it's a joke. I have never actually done it, but I always think that would make me stop crying. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he did that to Louis B. Mayer because that's how like, powerful he felt i think wow uh and mayor was not used to being confronted so he fucking hated billy haynes but he brought in the money so uh yeah he there was nothing he could really do so we'll come back after this break quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So as I mentioned earlier, Irving Thalberg uh, is a huge fan of Billy Haynes. In 1929, he holds up Haynes as both the prototypical symbol of male youth of his day and the new model for a male romantic star. He says, the idealistic love of a decade ago is not true today. William Haynes with his modern salesman attitude to go and get it is more typical. So he's really being set up as this ideal romantic lead at this point. This is so interesting because today in 2021, you you still you don't often see a gay man in a romantic lead in a like heterosexual role. No, I can't think of anyone unless they're not out. Unless they're not yeah. out, right? Um, so another thing that sets Haynes apart at this time is he's one of the few actors who's able to transition from silent films to talkies. Like he has a great voice. A lot of people got undone by their voices during this period. Like it's a famous thing in Singing in the Rain uh, with that actress where she starts speaking and it's awful. But a lot of famous actors got taken down by that, including like Clara Bow had like a Bronx accent or something, right? Like, I mean, she had scandals too. That's another episode. But yeah, a lot of people didn't translate. Well, this is exactly the period of time when my great grandpa started working in Hollywood like out of high school or out of college in the late 20s when they were transitioning. Yeah. Now, an, a, another interesting thing is that, um, so he plays this wisecracker in these silent films, which is all subtitles. Uh, and he, you know, so it's like, was this wit and timing written for him? But the reality is he was that guy. So that's another reason he was able to seamlessly transition because he was the wisecracking witty uh, guy. And often those subtitles he got were jokes that he ad-libbed. Uh, so he just uh, perfectly uh, transitioned. Now, Billy and Jimmy at this time also bought a new home decorated by Billy in a way that was so stunning. Visitors who would come to his lavish parties were just like amazed by his decorating skills. Uh, but trouble was on its way once again. Now, in 1930, every studio agreed to follow the moral guidelines laid out by the Hayes Production Code. But in a way, it was an empty promise at first. Studios kind of agreed to go along with these things, knowing that the Hayes office would never really uh, pu- like pu- punish them for anything. A lot of people had fears when talkies started that things would get racier uh, when people were able to say things. So that was partially why this started. Um, the movie studios also wanted to eliminate the idea that the government would regulate things. So they thought they could kind of eliminate that by agreeing to kind of self-regulate, thinking that they would control the Hayes Code production um, and the Hayes office uh, completely. Obviously, they don't get to control the Hayes office, as we all know. Now, uh, there is a period right when this starts that movies actually do get racier. And in a way, people trying to buck the rules make things dirtier. Right. <laughs> I feel like we've talked about that as well. Um, this is also where these morals, clause, morals clauses start being entered into performers' contracts to kind of scare stars straight. Uh, most stars sign these contracts easily and they just are like, well, we'll stay out of trouble uh, so they can't be used against, against me. These clause still, clauses still exist, by the way. Like a lot of athletes have these things. 
Um, So making things more difficult was that there is a new crop of Hollywood media happening at this point. They don't... uh, take studios as seriously as the previous crop do. They don't, they're not afraid of studios and they're not afraid to find these stories and like blackmail studios um, saying that they'll release this information and fuck these stars over. So studios, the tables have turned on them as far as them owning the media as well. Luckily for Billy, uh, he is friendly with Luella Parsons because she works for Hearst, who he is friends with. So she kind of doesn't really go after Billy because she does go after a lot of people. She's a huge moralistic screw, like scold. Uh, they all basically suck. This is the beginning of um, what's also called the pansy craze. So a lot of the gay subcultures in Greenwich Village and Harlem have moved into more mainstream venues. Uh, these are venues that have like drag performance and stuff like that. Billy is obviously front and center at all of these hot spots in Hollywood. These places don't serve alcohol, but they're strictly monitored by cops, making sure no same-sex dancing or whatnot is happening. And we talked about this. In Gladys uh, Bentley. Yes. So he's constantly narrowly escaping these police raids that are happening at these clubs because they're just being harassed basically these places. So Billy is really living on edge. Um, but he had reason to not be so worried because he is one of the few stars who manages to get his moral clause removed from his contract entirely. Now he refuses to sign it as long as a moral clause is in his contract. MGM offers him a trade-off that they will, they will allow him to get rid of the morals clause if he agrees to two years extensions at a time rather than the typical, which was a five-year contract. Now, Billy thinks he's sort of won on this front, but Mayer likes the idea of being able to get rid of him quicker if he needs to. So it's definitely not going to work out for Billy. Billy is seemingly unaware that a religious fervor is really mounting up after the carefree 20s, and homosexuality would be a major target of these religious groups more than any other thing, except for maybe like women being sluts. It's like sexual stuff, but especially gay and women, right? Now, another aspect that's sort of sending conservatives a conservative way through Hollywood is the Great Depression is starting. So a lot of people are starting to resent this gluttonous, immoral um, lifestyle that is sort of epitomized by the Hollywood elite. Making things worse for Billy is that his films began to slide at the box office over the course of 1930 and 1931. His contract is canceled only for him to be brought back by the studio as a featured player for a far reduced salary and billing. In 1931, he attempts to um, they attempt to rebrand Haynes from a wisecracking post-college boy into a more adult romantic lead. He is cast in a movie called Just a Gigolo. Uh, He plays a trust fund playboy who makes a bawdy bet with his uncle that he can get a society princess to give up her virtue. (laughs) Do you like that Van Halen song? Uh, First of all, it's David Lee Roth. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I meant. You know what I meant. That's where the song's from. It's from that movie? It's from this movie, but it's like, I'm just a gigolo. (laughs) Like, it's all oldies. (laughs) It's not not the real You mean David Lee Roth didn't write that song? No, he covered an oldies (laughs) happy. Buzzy buzzy bop, zidi bop. Um, Wait, this is a great time for me to do my David Lee Roth impression. Zidi bop, Whoa! I love that song by David Lee Roth. Me too. It's great. The yeah. video is amazing. He's like in a milkman uniform. Oh, wait, that's California girls. Wait, he wears this milkman uniform. <laughs> <laughs> he really does. What was up with that? I have no idea, but I feel like I need to research what the deal was because we all just accepted it. <laughs> we'll watch the video after the episode. Okay, because I remember he does California Girls and in he's dressed man. in a milkman uniform. I can't remember the Just the Gigolo video, but I probably will when I see it. Great song. Great song. I love it. Okay. (laughs) Unfortunately, despite the song, this movie does not do much to uh, turn his career around. Haynes is informed his contract will not be renewed after this. And the the trade papers are like, oh, he's angling for more money. Uh, Once again... MGM's like, okay, fine, we'll take you back. But he's even further demoted and his salary is even more reduced. So he's forced at this point to go on a dreaded personal appearance tour to like build things up. He starts a strenuous diet and exercise regime, thinking that if he loses weight, maybe that will help him appear younger and fresher. I mean, he's only in his early 30s. So this is all just absolutely tragic. Fucking Hollywood. Now, 
most importantly, though, he's lost his power. Like he doesn't have the box office uh, receipts protecting him from mayor and his demands. The press is even turning on him in many ways. They're really focusing on, uh, they're kind of fed up with his wisecracking ways and not answering questions. They kind of, um, yeah, I mean, they're sort of like dismissive of him. They're like, oh, like he likes, you know, antiques, (laughs) like kind of like all that kind of borderline homophobic accusations of what he's into and stuff like that. At this point, he takes Thalberg's advice. Who's he? Thalberg at some points like save your money, like you know that kind of stuff. And Billy opens an antique store on La Brea with his old Greenwich Village, Village buds. Those <gasps> two guys are like big time decorators now. Is it still open? I don't think so. That would uh, be so cool. <laughs> I know. I mean, there are antique stores on La Brea still. I know, but I was wondering, like, is this no, I don't think it there? is. I mean, that would be great. Now he also begins dabbling. And his helping his friends decorate their homes. He really has an eye for it. Billy uh, still wasn't playing along with the stories, uh, despite you know this backlash from the studio. Like he doesn't do anything to help himself with this. As I mentioned, you know people are calling him a prima donna. Some some magazines refer to him as a housewife. Like this kind of stuff. So they're really demeaning him in the press. Absolutely. So. I mean, that's the thing with Hollywood. It's like once you're down, everyone fucking piles on and kicks you. You know what I mean? And then the next day you could be up and everyone's fucking kissing your ass again as if nothing happened. It's right. just sick. Now, another thing that sort of scares Billy at this time and shows him that things are really changing and things are getting really conservative is his friends Gary Cooper and actor Andy Lawler, who were involved in a relationship, even living together. Uh, now, Gary would maintain heterosexual relationships um, but have this relationship with Andy separate. So he kind of played the game to keep this uh, relationship private. But the studio was like, nope, not anymore. Like, we can't even do that shit. You can't even have your secret relationships. So they dropped Lawler from his contract and essentially ended things between the two actors. So in 1931, Billy is arrested at a YMCA during a police raid when he is caught in sexual relationships with a sailor. Mayor was apoplectic. Adding to his anger was that there was a huge sex scandal now happening happening over at Paramount with Clara Bow, who was in the midst of a lawsuit with an assistant who was blackmailing her about her sexual escapades. But we'll save that for our eventual Clara Bow episode because that's a great story, and I've I've wanted to do that for a long time. Right. So, yeah, I mean, he's like. Every all these other things are are making Mayor even more of an asshole, and he was already fucking at an eleven to begin with. Right? Billy briefly considers marrying actress Anita Page, but is like, I can't. Like, I've gone this far. <laughs> I can't. Like, I can't do it. Like, right. he could not do it. By the end of 1932, Mayor is extra freaking out because studio profits are dwindling. Sex scandals were everywhere at this point. Paul Byrne had just killed himself. He shot himself in the head, leaving a cryptic suicide note two months after marrying uh, Jean Harlow. Mare was convinced it was because he was gay, even though that's never been uh, a thing. I think he did have some erectile dysfunction or something. What? So that was what he... Paul Byrne? So that's why they thought he was gay? They thought he was gay because, yeah, I mean, Mara was just homophobic and assumed everyone was like, you know, like whatever. Yeah. I don't think that that's ever been even a rumor. Right. But uh, actor Edmund Goulding had been holding bisexual orgies and he had trouble with the law when several guests had threatened to press charges over something that happened there. I could never find out what that was. Garbo at the time was on a cruise with her lesbian lover, just like wilding out on a cruise. So Mare was like literally blowing his top. Right. <laughs> he couldn't believe these fucking people. Uh, making things even worse for Billy is that Irving Thalberg has a heart attack in December of 1932, <gasps> putting him out of commission. Like his, he is so stressed about this fucking job that he literally has a heart attack in his early 30s. Uh, well, so, yeah, if I worked for Louis yeah, Mayer. Yeah, seriously. So Billy doesn't even have his like backup there anymore. Um, so he's basically feeling pretty screwed. In 1933, Billy is arrested again for cruising. I guess he felt so stressed. <laughs> he just had to go cruising again. Like he like, that was his thing. And Mayer had it. Like 
that was it for him with Billy. Uh, there's many versions of this story at this, like there's lots of different versions, but let's just give Billy his famous one. Uh, Louis Bumera calls Haynes into his office and tells him it's time to get serious. He needs to drop Jimmy and get married to a woman. Billy says, I am married and walks out the door choosing Jimmy over Mare. Now that is Billy's version, but it is basically true. He ditched his Hollywood career for his husband, Jimmy Shields in that moment. Now the area where it's sort of not true is that technically he was still under contract. Right. But he was basically like, when I'm out when it's done. Like, right. And he wasn't getting roles or anything anyway, so it didn't really matter. He kind of thinks, okay, I'm still under contract for a year. Maybe Thalberg will return because Thalberg takes off time to obviously recover uh, from his heart attack. That's the one guy uh, in a position of power that had his back. Yes. So he's like, maybe things will change in a year, but for now, I'm just done. Like, In the meantime, a new breed of masculinity was sort of popularized in the movies. It was more rough and tumble types like Spencer Tracy and Clark Gable uh, that were coming into fashion. So obviously... Oddly enough, Clark Gable is someone that Billy fucked back in the day. Oh. So, I mean... (laughs) Good for him. Yeah. Now, there's another bit I'll get to later. Now, while waiting for Thalberg to return, Billy begins decorating the homes of his friends to keep that year... To keep occupied this year. While Thalberg is out, Mayer hires his son, David O. Selznick, who becomes his big ally. And when Thalberg returns, it's like a completely contentious situation at MGM, and he's kind of on the outs now. So they're severely under the thumb of these conservative Catholic groups at this time, because Mayer just falls right in line with these conservative groups, because he's conservative. Right. So unfortunately for Haynes, Thalberg who is still basically recovering. He never recovers from this heart attack 100%. He just didn't have the fight in him to fight for Billy. And uh, he kind of struggles with these health issues the rest of his life, eventually dying a few years later of pneumonia at the age of 37. Wow. Now, Billy never blames Thalberg. He saves all of his wrath for Mayor. He says that he's a dyed-in-the-wool son of a bitch, absolutely despicable. Um, But Billy almost got out just in time because by the mid-1930s, Star scandals were fucking forbidden. Everyone was an innocent fucking angel. You were not allowed to be homosexual. Like the studios had an airtight fucking grip on all of these stars making their lives miserable. And we've talked about plenty of them to know how these people fucking suffered, including Judy Garland and just like their weight was monitored. Everything about their lives was fucking controlled by the studios. Now, no one played the game harder than Cary Grant, who Billy hated, like he despised Cary Grant because to him, Cary Grant played the game. Like Cary Grant was gay and he played the game. He married his assistants. Like he had tons of lavender marriages and Billy just could not respect him uh, at all. Now, later in life, Cary Grant would say sort of cryptic things, lamenting never being himself, but he never uh, officially came out of the closet. He even sued Chevy Chase for calling him a homo on national TV. Like that, I don't know what the deal was there. I'm assuming it was a joke on SNL or something, but he like sued Chevy Chase. Like, how dare you accuse me of being gay? Like, right. So, I mean, who the hell knows? It's like, I do have sympathy, but at the same time, I don't know. Like, (laughs) I have no idea. Like, I feel bad for, I respect Billy too for doing it the right way. Like, when it was hard. Now, he does make a few minor films at Poverty Row Studios, and then he retires from acting, basically. He does get like a few more offers. He's also offered like um, a cameo role in Sunset Boulevard that he declines. And he later says, it's a rather pleasant feeling of being away from pictures and being part of them because all my friends are. I can see the nice side of them without seeing the ugly side of the studios. And that does seem like an ideal situation, like not having to deal with the bullshit of it. Now, as his Hollywood career comes to an end, His time in Hollywood is not over. He reinvents himself and becomes one of Hollywood's most in-demand interior designers. Uh, As I mentioned before, he owned this antique shop on La Brea. Uh, He basically turned his own home into a showroom that, like, showcased his, like, taste. Like, guests would literally come over and be like, I want you to do this for me. Uh, And then he'd sell them stuff from his antique store to, like, fill these houses. It was, like, a perfect... Uh, business now, his style back then sort of fit the architecture that was happening at the time. He did uh, very like 
you know, like he took out all the gaudy stuff that Starlet bought with their first money and got them actually expensive things. Like right. they had cheap versions of expensive things still. So he, you know, did that. He was really famous at the time for hand painted wallpaper was like one of his signatures. Um, Ottomans being used as tables, stuff like that. Some of his antiques and art were used in movies, including um, Gone with the Wind. Like some of the stuff in Terra is Billy Haynes's antique collection. Now, his friend, George Cukor, is the original director of Gone with the Wind. That movie changed directors. I think Victor Fleming took over, which is, I think he also directed Wizard of Oz. Um, He was like a more masculine director. And the reason Cukor got fired was because Clark Gable overheard Cukor calling him one of Billy's old tricks. (laughs) (laughs) And then Clark Gable got him fired from the movie. Jesus. Yeah. The, you gotta love Kukor. <laughs> frankly, frankly, my dear. I do give a damn. I'm real uptight about it, in fact. Now, uh, yeah, so obviously his Hollywood connections, he gets all the best clients. They have tons of money. Um, so all of his work is shown in these magazine profiles. That t- So he just gets really famous and successful at this interior design business almost instant- in- instantly. Now, he's still very active in um, these gay circles that are definitely more underground now. So it's like more private parties, which is led by his friend George Gukur, has these like incredible dinner parties and gatherings of all the gays in Hollywood, which you just know are like the most fun fucking parties. One person who's always there is Cesar Romero. And he, he, he took a page from Billy doing like the lifelong bachelor and never really answering questions type, uh, attitude with the press. He did play the game to the extent that he was happily a beard for other women, like for actresses like Barbara Stanwyck. So he'd go with them to events to help them out, but he never married. Now by 1936, uh, it really appears that Billy's fortunes have turned around with a successful career. He's making tons of money and he's able to live the life he wants to live freely in Hollywood without studios breathing down his neck. But his worst scandal was yet to come. So in the spring of 1936, Billy and Jimmy rent a beach house in the seaside neighborhood of El Porto, which is a section of Manhattan Beach. Much like today, Manhattan Beach was a conservative town. Uh, The tensions were really high between locals and renters who came for the summer. They were especially irritated by the Hollywood crowds that were coming into these small beach towns. Nearby town... Uh, Hermosa Beach at the time had a large KKK presence. And both of these areas are pretty white. And at the time were like a little uh, white supremacy <laughs> uh, stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, so although, you know, these this couple and their friends are all very well ma- mannered, the steady stream of men coming in and out of this beach house being rented by Billy and Jimmy got the locals' attention. On May 28, 1936, Jimmy had an encounter with a local six-year-old boy named Jimmy Walker who struck a, a conversation with Shields because he was walking his poodle who had recently been dyed purple. The boy kind of followed Shields around all day and the poodle around um, all afternoon at the beach. And Shields, finally wanting some peace and quiet, threw a few coins this boy's way, trying to get him to scram. Reportedly, it was about 6 to 15 cents, like nothing. Now, Billy arrives the following day to prepare for Decoration Day weekend, which is Memorial Day weekend. Oh. It used to be called Decoration Day. Oh. I didn't know what... I was like, what's Decoration Day? (laughs) That sounds fun. Uh, But like getting decorated with a medal. I guess. Yeah. So that's what... It took me a while to get it because I honestly thought it was some interior design. (laughs) Dude, that's what it sounds like. I was like, all the gay guys are coming to decorate. That sounds amazing. (laughs) But no, it's just Memorial Day weekend. So they have about 15 guests coming over uh, for this Memorial Day weekend. On May 31st, Billy, Jimmy, and several guests went out to an Italian restaurant to have a spaghetti dinner. When they were walking home, they were approached by several men, one of whom said, we don't want you to live here. We'll give you an hour to get out of town. Billy, not really get what was going on, started joking with the men. One of them hit Jimmy, and when Billy went to his aid, he was struck and fell to the ground where he was then punched on the face. They managed to make it to the house where they... um, 
dressed Jimmy's head wound because he was bleeding from his head. More men and some women gathered outside the house, yelling at Billy and his group of friends inside. When they attempted to go to the car to leave, they were being shoved and hit by the crowd. The crowd had also smeared tomatoes all over the crowd. The crowd chanted... The crowd? The crowd. The crowd smeared tomatoes? Yeah, they had smeared like tomatoes all over the car. Oh, you said... Okay, the car. The car. What did I say? The crowd. Oh. The crowd chanted, clean up this town as they were trying to pull out of the driveway and drive away. Uh, They were also like throwing tomatoes at them when they were trying to drive out. Others in Billy's group were told they had 30 minutes to leave because they were getting rid of all the undesirables. One of Haynes' friends said, we don't need 30 minutes. We're getting out now. (laughs) It's like, who is that friend? Uh, They chased the cars, throwing tomatoes and yelling at them as well. Police, of course, arrived shortly after the riot had ended. They pulled up. They're like, hey, what's going on? I guess there's no need for us here. Uh, Now, no formal charges had been made, but town gossip was that Jimmy had molested the little (gasps) boy he met on the beach. The Long Beach newspaper was the first person to report the incident, showing a picture of a beaten and black-eyed Billy. Two days after the attack, the little boy's mom filed a morals complaint against Billy and Jimmy, but there was no evidence, so further investigation was ordered. On June 3rd, the story of Billy, ex-film star, being beaten by a mob of 50 was everywhere. Uh, More devastating was the sub-headline of a six-year-old boy alleging abuse against someone in the Haynes household. People in the town were openly bragging about the attack on the men and truly proud of it. Like, they didn't fucking care. Kenneth Anger writes about it in Hollywood Babylon 2, and he uh, really pushes the theory that this attack was coordinated by KKK members and white supremacists. Billy himself um, speaks to the press, and he said that the group referred to themselves as the White Legion. So, I mean, this is... Definitely like a hate crime. Oh, they just course. didn't have that back then. They didn't have that term. Yes. So regardless, um, the charges of molestation, uh, there was that. And then some people were also accusing him of paying the boy as if he was a six-year-old escort. But it seems like for most people, it didn't matter if these charges were true. They were just there to get the gay people out of town, basically. So Billy and Jimmy cooperate fully with the investigation. Billy does not press charges against any of the attackers, and it does seem to disappear. Now, in the book I read, the author speaks to Jimmy Walker. He was still alive when this book uh, came out in 1998, I think. That's the kid, the little boy. So he claims that Jimmy Shields took him up to the house and gave him a blowjob, but that it wasn't that enjoyable, but it didn't ruin his life either. He also said his parents were very liberal and were disgusted by the mob and had no intention of inciting that mob. They were just trying to protect their son. At the hearing, this guy, Jimmy Walker, he said that the attorney at some point asked him, do you see the man in the courtroom who took you in the shower and put his mouth on your pee-pee? Jimmy thought that courtroom meant like in the galley, not the person sitting at the table, so he hesitated to say yes, and then the court, the case was thrown out because he couldn't identify Jimmy. Now, this is from the book, and I just want to say what he said. There really is no evidence that what Jimmy Walker is saying is true. Uh, Jimmy was never accused of pedophilia. Jimmy Shields was never accused of pedophilia before or after or at any other time in his life of ever being inappropriate with a kid. That doesn't mean it didn't happen this time. I'm just saying there still is questions about what happened here. And obviously things like false memories can also happen with young children. So there's like a lot still unknown here. Uh, Jimmy Walker said he does not hold a grudge. He said there was no injury or physical harm. Uh, and he said, you just don't forget when you get your first blowjob. That's Jesus. a quote from him. So I don't know like what's going on. I'm just presenting the information. Now, Billy was no longer being protected by the studio. So the way that the case disappeared was never really figured out. But some people speculate that the reason it did disappear was because some of the people at the house that weekend were George Kakar, Cesar Romero, and Clifton Webb. So they had other big stars there that weekend that they were trying to protect, and Jemmy kind of benefited from that. Uh, regardless, this scandal completely traumatized Billy. Um, he retreated somewhat and became press shy for the first time in his life. Now, this did affect Billy in another way. Um, 
With Hollywood basically on this conservative lockdown, his scandal got him knocked off of numerous invitation lists. He also started losing clients at his interior design business. It was Joan Crawford who helped rehabilitate him at that point. She began inviting him to her biggest parties, including her annual Christmas party that Louis B. Mayer would be attending. And you know what I mean? Like that really helped him kind of get back. Like she's willing to take a risk on him. Everyone else should as well. He became, he was a beloved uncle. They talked to Christina in this book. So she's quoted as saying that they, he was always trying to, to nudge Joan to be a better mom, Mm -hmm. (laughs) according to Christina. Um, She said that unlike her mom, Billy always treated the children like human beings and not you know, publicity props. When a friend asked Billy about the rumors once, asking what Joan did with the kids when she was always traveling and on movie sets, he said she probably put them up at Beacons, a warehouse where Hollywood stored furniture and props. So he was kind of aware. Right. And he did his best, but there was only so much he could do. Now, he began expanding his business into set decorating. He got his biggest commission in 1937 when he was um, hired to decorate the home of Jack Warner. This is a obviously a Warner Brothers movie studio. This is a big get. It was an opulent success. Just the furniture cost over $1 million, which is like $10 million today. Like he went all out on these fucking antiques. It was such a success. He then did the Warner's um, Palm Springs home and he was hired by Joan and Constance, Constance Bennett to do their Holmby Hills uh, mansions. He was also invited to present at a room at the uh, Golden Gate International Exposition, like a World's Fair type deal. And this gave him international exposure. He was no longer just a Hollywood designer. He had clients all over the world. He knew he was finally back on top though, when he was reinvited to William Randolph Hearst event. It was his 75th birthday. It was a circus themed uh, event. Celebrities even dressed as circus acts and Hearst was the ringmaster. (laughs) Betty Davis arrived as a bearded lady. Cary Grant and Randolph Scott Scott did an acrobatic kind of act. And Billy was just like... Hearst actually put his arm around Billy and like, you know, was by his side. So it was like a big event, sort of I'm back on the social scene kind of deal. Of course, the phonies kept their distance at the party, including prude Loretta Young. (laughs) She had a beef with Billy because she once asked him to contribute to a auction for a home for unwed mothers. And he sent an antique vase full of condoms. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, practical. Yeah. Now, as I mentioned, he was very close to Kokor, who was kind of like the head of the gay contingency in Hollywood having these parties. He didn't really love Jimmy. And Jimmy got in a lot of shenanigans. So at some point, Kokor just kind of, he was winding down his party ways anyway. He didn't want to be around Jimmy anymore. But luckily, Cole Porter had moved into town, and he was the new gay party host uh, who kind of took over for George. Once again, unexpected circumstances put a halt on Billy's party lifestyle. Pearl Harbor happened, and although he was already in his 40s, he was drafted and served in the military, much like a lot of other Hollywood stars of the day, and he took his service seriously. It gained him a lot more respect in Hollywood, um, and when he was bad, when he was discharged, Hollywood was brimming with hot young men in uniform, which made it all worthwhile. <laughs> Club Gala was the hot spot in LA for gay servicemen and the men who loved them. There he met a friend, a friend who would become a lifelong friend, Frank Lissinger, after he propositioned him in a restroom patting his ass. Frank had heard the rumors that Billy was a top and he declined, but they became friends. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Frank spoke of Billy's orgies. He said he had a friend who told him of the sex parties and participating in daisy chains. Oh. Do you know what daisy chains are? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nice. But should we, should we tell our listeners or should we make them look up at an urban dictionary? <laughs> Google it. You should Google it at Google work. Google it. Yeah. Google it at work. Pull up images. <laughs> um, by now, Billy was middle-aged, thinning hair. He had a little bit of a paunch, but he was still fucking and, and loving sex. And like, so was Jimmy. So they had lots of sexcapades still. So he's still with Jimmy? Yeah. They stay together their whole lives. Wow. So... Once again, Jimmy is the low-key cause of another Billy, Billy friendship ending. This time... Now, Cole Porter is having these gay soirees, 
But he's still a little bit of like image conscious and he doesn't want things to be too déclassé cuz he's Cole Porter. But he's <laughs> as we know from our Scotty Bowers episode, Cole Porter was a freak. But he does it privately. <laughs> he doesn't he's very private about it. Yes. So he catches Jimmy fucking a service member in the bushes of his Rockingham estate. <laughs> which is where OJ lives. Sounds hot. Uh, and he didn't like that. So the couple were no longer invited to Cole's house. Making it more awkward was Billy owned that house and was renting it to Cole Porter. And he tried to evict Porter. Porter took him to court. They kind of settled the matter. Um, and Porter ended up staying in the home the rest of his life. But another thing that was creating problems for the couple is that they both became sloppy drunks and were just more trouble than fun at this point. They got messy. Now, he leaves Hollywood basically, and starts hooking up with the wealthy dowager set, including Lee Annenberg, Betsy Bloomingdale, and Nancy Reagan. He hooked up with Betsy Bloomingdale? Yep, they were like BFF. Now, this is like in the 50s. Wait, he fucked her? No, 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 no. Like, they were best friends. Oh, they- and he, she was hiring him and getting all her friends to hire him for decorating. Okay. No, they didn't hook up. Okay. Sorry. I was like, wait, he fucked Yeah, he Daisy chained <laughs> Betsy Bloomingdale, Nancy Reagan. <laughs> this is when Nancy was still fun. No. Uh, so he's in this sort of L.A. socialite world now, uh, and that's pretty much where he's going to spend a lot of his final years. He begins decorating their homes. He starts a new venture with a younger designer named Ted Graber. They start Williams Haynes, William Haynes, Inc., where they design and produce luxury furnishings. They have this brick-and-mortar store in Beverly Hills. He finally kind of... He's been doing this sort of early version of like a Hollywood Regency, like very fancy stuff. He kind of starts modernizing his look. He decorates the home of Sid and Francie. <laughs> wait, Brody. wait a minute. Their names wait a minute. Sid Stop it. <laughs> Their names are Sid and Francie? Yes. <laughs> Sid and Francie Brody, who are really rich. They have a... <laughs> I know. I laughed so hard when I read it. I was like, wait, is that right? I had to like go check my notes because I was like, did I write that wrong? I'm such a moron. <laughs> um, so they have a really, really gorgeous modern home designed by architect A. Quincy Jones, who I love. He does a lot of amazing mid-century architecture. So Billy kind of starts doing more modern uh, interior design, which is where the stuff I love of his is that from this period. He also gets another big job uh, decorating the Mocambo nightclub, oh. which is definitely not as modern, but definitely cool uh, old school stuff. He He's also the one who does Joan Crawford's apartment with Alfred Steele in New York. The I one know. we see. <laughs> we talked about yeah. it. So that's him, uh, that whole debacle. Dude, that was a nightmare. Yeah. Just reading it in this book, I, w- I got flashbacks. I was like, oh, <laughs> I can't. What is she doing? They fought a lot. Like, I mean, obviously. Yeah. So now, as I mentioned before, it's in the 50s. When he starts these relationships with a lot of these women, they're not Republican women yet. But in the 50s, a lot of this changes. So he has this liberal Hollywood crowd group of friends and this more conservative clientele that's like the Betsy Bloomingdale's and stuff like that. At that point, most of those women had switched party affiliations and were like rabid anti-communist. In his heart, he kind of knew they hated people like him. But to his face, they were like, not you, like that kind of thing. Right. Which is definitely like a fucked up existence to have when you're dealing with that kind of I, I hate it yeah so it's obviously very uneasy relationships because he's financially dependent on this type of clientele to like exist but they hate him they hate who he is yeah they don't hate him but they hate everyone like him right and right. they like other rich or famous gay people it's fucked up yeah so he gets a commission to do the home of the Annenbergs who are other rich people they have this um, Palm Springs estate called Sunnylands that I've always wanted to go to. It still exists. Like we could go there and take a tour of it. It's like a gorgeous Palm Springs mid-century. Like it's like all white and like just very uh, cool. Um, he also does their. Um, he eventually gets um, appointed to be the U.S. ambassador to. Um, the UK, the Annenberg guy, and he redecorates that home there, Winfield House in London, and that creates a huge stir because everyone's like, fuck Hollywood, because <laughs> it's like all old English and he completely redoes this house and they're pissed off about it. Now, Reagan, the Reagans start getting more powerful because when he knows them 
they're not that powerful yet. Like Reagan is still a washed up actor. They get, he gets elected governor of California and Nancy Reagan can finally afford to hire him because she couldn't before uh, they start getting more money. And Reagan is, he's a real shit bag. He's literally making speeches um, about how bad gays are. He does this sting in his own, he finds out some of his assistants are secretly gay, like in the governor's mansion. And he drives them all out. Like he finds out who they are and and fires all the gay people in his administration. He even makes a joke about like, we should bring Truman Capote in and see if we can get out the rest of them. Uh, He, Nancy also begins making speeches, um, calling homosexuality abnormal and saying that it is a sickness. Um, Just very fucked up stuff, um, for sure. Now, this is kind of common in Hollywood at this point because a lot of big names like Hedda Hopper in particularly are huge right-wingers and they're at these parties with their gay friends like behind the scenes. I just like... I fucking hate it. Like, it's just gross. It drives me nuts. But Billy and Jimmy's parting ways are winding down. He's starting to wear these embarrassingly, like, bad toupees. And he's basically at this point in his life where he's kind of tragically winding down and watching all of his friends die. Like, through this period of the late 60s, all of his old friends die. Um, He's particularly devastated by the murder of... Ramon Navarro, who gets, we talked about in that episode, he gets murdered um, by two men. Uh, In the summer of 1973, Billy is diagnosed with lung cancer. He dies at St. John's Hospital uh, in Santa Monica in December of 1973 with Jimmy by his side. Billy requests no memorial. Now, although left out of the official newspaper obituaries, Billy's friends obviously all treat Jimmy like the widow or widower, he was obviously devastated and in such a bad way, people were very worried about him. So worried that even Ronald Reagan visited him to give him a pep talk about getting through it. I'd be like, please. I was like, this is, and no surprise on March 4th, 1974, he writes a note saying, goodbye to all of you who have tried so hard to comfort me in my loss of William Haynes, who I have been with since 1926. I I now find it impossible to go it alone. I am much too lonely. Uh, So he takes an overdose of sleeping pills and basically takes his clothes off, lies down in bed, falls asleep, and never wakes up. This is uh, two months after Billy dies. This happens. Uh, And perhaps the most fitting tribute and a nice memorial, even though Billy didn't want one, his entire estate of fine antiques is put up for auction at Sotheby's and it's attended by 400 people, including Hollywood late and wealthy socialites, all desperate to get a piece of his exquisite taste. Um, So although his movie career, as I mentioned earlier, is mostly forgotten, he is now remembered for something more important, this life that he lived, the enduring relationship he had with Jimmy and like choosing that love over um, this Hollywood career. Uh, So through all the ups and downs and craziness, according to a friend, it ultimately worked between them because they loved each other. What else could it be? They were interred side by side at Woodlawn Memorial Cemetery in Santa Monica together forever. And as Joan Crawford described them, they were the happiest married couple in Hollywood. Wow. That's the story. (laughs) That was a good story, Des. That was a lot of information. That was a lot of information. I honestly, when I picked it, I was getting nervous because I was like, ooh, is there anything juicy? <laughs> and then I was just reading. I was like, oh, shit. Oh, oh, my God. Like, yeah. Like, he had it throughout his whole life. He had wild things happening. Wow. Uh, but you don't know until you read the book. Like, right, right. Do you know what I mean? Well, we'll definitely have some really good pictures for Instagram. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of great decorating ones and just of him and all his famous friends. Yeah. I mean, for so sure. We'll post those this week. Go to our Instagram page. We're gonna we're gonna head out, record the after show, oh, and yeah. <laughs> we will see you all on Friday. Yay. Bye. <laughs>